excuse me. Hello. Um, we're with the MSU Museum. We're working on our podcast today. Would you mind answering a quick question for us? All right, so the question is, um, hypothetically, if your local gas station had a live security feed that fed to the local police, would you enjoy that idea or no? Um, personally, I think I would feel comfortable just because, you know, it's a gas station. I'm not really up to anything suspicious, so I feel like it could make everything safer. But, you know, as a hypothetical idea, I think it would be beneficial. And how about you? Um, I guess if there was a need for it, if there was suspicious activity going on, yeah, go for it. But, like, if there's no reason to, you don't need to. Maybe. Depends. Probably not, though. I mean, I guess so. I don't think it really changes whether I'd go to that gas station or not. So <laughs> would you think it would be more beneficial if it was in, like, a high-crime area or a low-crime area or just anywhere? I would say to make it, like, an even playing field, it should be, like, everywhere if they're going to actually do it because, like, they shouldn't discriminate against, like, high-class or low-class crime areas if they're going to do it. Uh, yeah, I'd be comfortable with that. For sure, yeah. I, I think it probably just improves safety and overall would be an improvement. And how about you? Definitely not. Nothing that can connect me live to a police station makes me feel safe. And how come? For the obvious reason. <laughs> What's that obvious reason? <laughs> <laughs> uh, police doesn't make me feel safe. That's it. Hey, thanks for joining us. I'm Natasha T. Miller. And I'm Antoine Scott. And this is Tracked and Traced. A podcast about surveillance technology where we are asking the question, is it working? Is it worth it? Today, we're going to take a close look at a relatively new but well-established surveillance program used by the Detroit Police Department, Project Greenlight. I want to ask you a question, Antoine. When did you first learn about it? So when I first learned about Project Greenlight, I moved into a new building, and I went to sleep at night. And then I realized that there was this flashing green light outside of my window, and it was coming from the apartment building across the street. So, not really knowing too much about it, in the middle of the night, I just moved my bed to the other side of the room where it currently stays to this day. But I did do a little bit more investigation about it, and I learned about this rapid deployment of surveillance infrastructure in Detroit that needed to be questioned. What about you? It took me a while to learn about Project Greenlight, to be honest. I would just go into these different spaces, and I would just, again, what you what you talked about, I would see these flashing green lights. But seeing the green lights, I would actually become worried, you know, because I would go into certain neighborhoods that were considered dangerous and notice that the green lights were there. When I went to other neighborhoods, like suburban areas, I would not see those cameras. I would not see those flashing green lights. So I was very confused and perplexed about what is happening here. And then I started to just see the stories um, in the news, started to hear the mayor talk about it. So maybe a few few years ago, but honestly, uh, up until maybe in this last year, uh, Project Greenlight has been sort of a mystery to me. Yeah, it, it's something that we've seen talked about more and more in the city as the years have gone on, but it's something that we are looking at a little bit more in-depth today. And in learning a bit more about Project Greenlight in Detroit, we'll be speaking with Eric Williams from the Detroit Justice Center and ACLU. But first, Laura Herberg takes a deep dive into Project Greenlight 
in Detroit. Can I get 10 on pump one and 15, 15 on pump seven? Ishmael Sala is the manager of a mobile gas station in Detroit. Like most stations in the city, Sala rings up his customers from behind a wall of bulletproof glass. But that's just one of the safety measures taken here. The station is also a member of Detroit's Project Greenlight program. That means the business has upgraded its lighting and installed security cameras that feed directly into Detroit's police department. Signage and a flashing green light atop the mobile sign outside are meant to tell potential customers and criminals that the gas station is involved in the program. Installation of required cameras, signs, and lights cost business owners around $5,000. On top of that initial investment, businesses have to pay for high-powered Wi-Fi to transmit video. Sala says the expense has been worth it for the station, which joined Greenlight about five years ago. Before we have our problems, after we get this uh, service, the green light, and I've been asking my customers because I have to feel, you know, see how's the business running. And they say in there, you know, they, they can come anytime. Before a night, they, they'd be afraid, you know. But now, uh, they're, they're happy. David Hunter is one of the happy customers. I feel real comfortable when I come to this gas station. It's my favorite one. What makes you feel comfortable? That we be a monitor. 24-7. Customer Keisha Johnson says she makes a point of patronizing this station. I feel safe when I come here with the green light. I know it's a green light, so I, I always come here to make sure I'm safe. One of the perks of joining the program is that police officers are meant to regularly stop by. When they do, they write their name in a special green light log. Sala shows me his. Uh, this is uh, our uh, green light folder. And the, the police, they come and, and, and every day they come and check with us and see if we have any problems, any comments, anything. Page after page in the binder is filled with signatures from police officers. Since I get the, the service of, uh, from uh, Greenlight, uh, I've been asking a lot of, you know, I mean, telling my friends or managers to get that because it's safe, like I said. Have you had any issues since you joined Greenlight? I mean, since we have it, um, yeah, sometime, but uh, the police, they come right away. What were the crimes that you had to report after you got green light? Uh, actually, these uh, pictures here, like some of them, they did uh, some stealing. Solid gestures toward a handful of pictures of men and women, still images taken from surveillance footage. Handwriting on each says, wanted by order of Detroit police. Solace says thefts and other crimes still happen here, but he feels like incidents have decreased since the business joined Greenlight. On the other side of the intersection sits another gas station, this one in Exxon with a sandwich shop attached. The business doesn't have a green light. It's just across the street, but the clientele here seem like they're a world apart. Multiple customers and even a worker say they don't know what Project Greenlight is. This despite the fact that there are more than 700 properties with flashing green lights located in the city of Detroit. I find a customer who has heard of the program, Michael Sterling. He tells me he thinks green light might be giving some patrons a false sense of security. The cameras, they don't matter in the city. People are gonna still do what they wanna do, besides if the camera's there or not. So if this was a green light, they'd still do what they wanna do. And what makes you say that? Because we're in the city, we're in Detroit, and it's fucked up out here. According to the FBI, in 2019, the Detroit Police Department reported 280 murders. In 2020, that number rose to 328. 
Project Greenlight started in 2016 as a potential crime intervention tool. It originally targeted gas stations since they were seen as crime hotspots, but has since expanded to include fast food restaurants, churches, apartment buildings, and more. The video from these participating locations is pumped into a special area of Detroit's police headquarters, the Real-Time Crime Center. Um, so this is our Real-Time Crime Center of the Detroit Police Department. That's Tia Sakos, the executive manager of the Crime Intelligence Unit with the Detroit Police Department. She's showing me around the center. We've got different stations set up with um, computer setups that feed into the cameras. So you can see on all of the computers, we've got um, different Project Greenlight cameras up, different traffic cameras, mapping um, technology. We've got local news up on the TV walls in front of us. It's like a full wall of screens. It is, yes. It goes the length of the entire room up front, and then all the desks are kind of facing that so we can keep an eye on, on everything that we have. The police department wouldn't tell me how much the center costs, but reporting by the Detroit Free Press found the department has spent at least $12 million on it. The footage that ends up here can be viewed after an incident occurs to help solve a crime. But Sacco says the department also monitors footage in real time and has caught criminals in the act. She pulls up archival footage from an incident where this was the case. The video, taken from a gas station, shows a woman walking down the sidewalk holding a purse. Suddenly, a car pulls up with two guys in it. They are armed with weapons. They take, they take her possessions, and then we actually see the aggravated assault, the shooting. I mean, she, she collapses to the sidewalk and is, like, clearly injured here in this video. She was shot. Correct, she was. The woman survived. Sacco says the crime analysts who were watching the footage as the shooting occurred were able to send medical assistance for the victim, as well as to provide a description of the vehicle for officers, which helped them locate and arrest two suspects. It's kind of mind-blowing to think that real-time crime center analysts sitting here in this remote building were able to detect a crime elsewhere and intervene. That said, we don't know how often this happens. The Detroit Police Department was unable to tell me how common it is. But the department says Project Greenlight has multiple goals. It's not just about stopping crime as it happens. It's also about assisting with prosecuting crime and preventing it, too. There's data from the department and academics that suggests that Greenlight does help with prosecution. Cases involving crimes caught on video at Greenlight locations are more likely to close. But what about the prevention factor? Does Greenlight help reduce crime? Giovanni Circo is an assistant professor at the University of New Haven who specializes in crime analysis. He's one of a handful of researchers who worked on a 94-page document looking into the effectiveness of Project Greenlight. I should say some of the work he's done was paid for by a grant to do research in partnership with the Detroit Police Department. I asked Circo, does Greenlight reduce crime? Boy, so that's, that's a... A, a tough question, and so as a as an academic, I'm going to give you the <clears throat> my uh, my long winded answer. On the one hand, Circo says Greenlight has many positive attributes. From a perspective of making people feel safer, um, improving relationships between the between business owners and the police, I think that has been um, a good thing. But he says when it comes to specifically assessing Greenlight's effectiveness at preventing crime, the question is not so easy to answer. In this case, we can say maybe. Circo says the report found something that might sound surprising at first. If a location joined Project Greenlight, 
crime actually tended to go up, except for violent crime, which stayed about the same. Serco says this probably reflects an increase in crime reporting rather than an actual increase in incidents. I think for a long period of time, some of these minor crimes were just much less likely to be reported for a number of different reasons. So things like staffing, for example, or um, a feeling among business owners that if they called the police for a minor crime, like a shoplifting or a theft, for example, that the police wouldn't respond. But even with more crimes being called in or detected on video, Greenlight did appear to reduce the occurrence of one specific crime, carjacking. Yet ultimately, Serco says, the study could not conclude that Greenlight prevented crime overall. In terms of a a method that's going to um, definitively reduce crime, we don't necessarily have the evidence to say that Greenlight is... Um, particularly effective at that. I asked the same question, does Greenlight reduce crime, to Ian Severy, a captain with Detroit's Crime Intelligence Unit. He gave me a different answer. What we found is that for green locations that have become Greenlight, there's usually a lessened amount of crime that occurs at those areas. Can you elaborate on that a little more? Uh, well, <laughs> Yeah, I can help with that. So I don't think, like, in the police department that we look at numbers, because numbers can be manipulated at times, right? That second voice is Rudy Harper, a communications officer for the department. In case you didn't hear him, what he said was, I don't think in the police department that we look at numbers, because numbers can be manipulated at times. The department's inability to use data to support all of its claims about Greenlight is just one of the reasons that it has some critics. I think residents need to be absolutely worried about Project Greenlight. That's John Sloan III, one of the leaders of the Detroit chapter of Black Lives Matter. Sloan, like many activists, is concerned about how Project Greenlight is used with facial recognition technology, software that identifies people from a picture. Facial recognition software is just largely uh, unpredictable in its ability to take race into account. And that what you can predict is the ways in which it will fail people with more melanin um, in their skin. A 2019 study by the U.S. government's National Institute of Standards and Technology found that false positive rates for facial recognition software are highest in African and East Asian people and lowest in Eastern Europeans. In other words, facial recognition is more likely to misidentify someone with darker skin. When I asked Captain Severy about the Detroit Police Department's use of facial recognition with Greenlight, at first, he said this. Project Greenlight does not use facial recognition. That's technically true, because Greenlight cameras don't have facial recognition embedded in them. But Severy did ultimately acknowledge that the Detroit Police Department takes still images from Project Greenlight footage and puts them into the department's facial recognition software. So yes, Greenlight footage doesn't use facial recognition, but facial recognition uses Greenlight footage. In a notorious blunder, the software was used with images taken from non-Greenlight footage, so regular security footage, to wrongfully arrest a suburban Detroit man, Robert Williams, in 2019. The department says its policies have changed since then, and it now has to have evidence beyond a facial recognition software match to arrest someone. While facial recognition gets a lot of attention, it's just one of the things that activists take issue with in regards to Project Greenlight. 
Eric Williams is an attorney who works with the ACLU of Michigan and the Detroit Justice Center. He's mostly concerned with the surveillance aspect of Greenlight. I mean, there's a reason we have, you know, we require the police to have reasonable suspicion or probable cause before they go interfering with people, right? Williams believes government power left unchecked will be abused. That's why the U.S. has checks and balances, he says. With Project Greenlight, he feels like it allows police officers too much access to Detroit's mostly Black citizenry. Greenlight provides basically a people for law enforcement. Williams says Detroiters are allowing themselves to be surveilled in real time when they go into Greenlight businesses under the premise that doing so will make their lives safer. But he reiterates, there's no strong evidence that Greenlight reduces crime overall. It's an expensive toy that doesn't really accomplish a whole hell of a lot other than place a burden on store owners to (laughs) buy this bandwidth and a burden on taxpayers to support these real-time crime centers to build them and staff them. Williams would like to see the real-time crime center done away with, but that's not likely to happen. The center is a crown jewel in Detroit's public safety headquarters, and the department shows no sign of shutting it down. The program, at least for now, will persist. Some Detroiters will continue to go out of their way to fill up their gas at stations with flashing green lights, believing that doing so will keep them safer. Other residents will continue to go to whatever gas station is closest, not buying into the premise that surveillance could save their life. The police will likely continue to applaud the program, even though there's little documented evidence that it reduces crime overall. And all the while, surveillance will continue to increase in the blackest city in America. So that was Laura Herberg's story on Project Greenlight in Detroit. So many juxtaposing opinions about public safety and necessity in that story. What do you think is a major reason for this divide amongst the citizens of Detroit? Yeah, I mean, one being generational. You know, and we'll hear Eric talk about that a little bit. Some people are still young enough to not care. I think something else would be just the miseducation and the misrepresentation of Project Greenlight. And as we explore and track and trace um, on so many episodes, if you don't know, you can't care. If you don't know, you can't properly fight it. So I, I think it's I think it's a combination of those two. So you've already heard a little bit about Eric Williams and his thoughts and reflections on Project Greenlight when he was speaking with Laura Herberg, but we got Eric to come back. And again, Eric is with the Detroit Justice Center and the ACLU. And um, this time he's just going to talk a bit more about Project Greenlight after this break. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Thank you, Eric, for joining us today for Tracked and Traced. Uh, We're exploring Project Greenlight in Detroit. And could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work uh, around Project Greenlight? Sure. My name is Eric Williams. I am an attorney uh, with the Detroit Justice Center. 
I'm also a cooperating attorney and member of the Lawyers Committee for the Michigan ACLU. I come to this from two distinct perspectives. So from the ACLU perspective, uh, my interest in Project Greenlight is related primarily to civil liberties. From the Detroit Justice Center's perspective, our concern is the misdirection of funds from those things that actually create safety to high-profile but ineffective programs like Project Greenlight. When did Project Greenlight emerge as a response to crime in Detroit? So Project Greenlight has been around for, what is it, five, maybe six years. And you've been objecting to it since the moment they start talking about it. So how is it that so many people in our community who are being surveilled by it don't know that it actually exists? The truth is people are busy living their lives, right? Civil liberties aren't necessarily something that people give much thought to until, you know, they kind of bump into it. To the extent most people are familiar with the program, they're relying on what they hear from our elected officials. So what Mayor Duggan has said and what uh, former uh, Chief of Police Craig said. And not to put too fine a point on it, they consistently lied. So what you kept hearing, if you were just, you know, your average Detroiter, is that there is this program, it doesn't cost the city anything, a lie. It reduces crime, again, unsubstantiated. And this is going to make Detroit safer and has done if you simply look at the statistics. Again, not true. And so it seems, though, that the disconnect or divide that comes from the thinking that one, civil liberties are actually being protected instead of being exploited is generational. Have you seen any of that throughout your work? Of, of course, um, sadly. So there's on the part of a lot of older Detroiters the attitude that if you aren't doing anything wrong, you don't need to worry about the police watching you. That's a little problematic. That's literally not how our country works, but I understand it. And I have to say this. This is something that you have to keep in mind. Crime is a problem in Detroit, but do a little thought experiment with me real quick. All right. Close your eyes. Picture the safest place you can imagine. It can be a real place. It can be a nice little suburb. It can be an island. It can be, you know, an imaginary place, whatever it is. If you look around in your head, I guarantee the things you see are safe parks, safe schools, vibrant commercial districts. You see people walking down the street. That's what we all picture when we think about a safe place. What you do not see are cameras. You don't see police officers on every corner. You don't see, you know, metal detectors in schools. You do not see surplus military equipment. These things that are a real big part of what we're told will create safety in our neighborhoods don't exist in anyone's idea of what actually is a safe place. And when you spend money on those things that I think we can all agree are a response to perceived danger rather than something that creates safety— when you spend money on that, you are taking public funds away from all the things in your head that really equated to safety. You're taking money away from schools. You're taking money away from mental health services. You're taking money away from dealing with homelessness, drug addiction, mental health issues. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, what is the effectiveness um, of the data of Project Greenlight? So there's a couple of things we have to keep in mind. And... The first is that Project Greenlight itself is not simply surveillance cameras. Project Greenlight consists of um, increased lighting, 
increased police presence. You look at increased police presence, and there's lots of studies that show uh, that it may deter crime at a moment. Some studies say that what you end up getting is people simply committing crimes elsewhere, but there is some impact on crime with increased police levels. So there are already two things in Project Greenlight that have been shown by studies to at least have some impact on crime, and they're relatively inexpensive. Then you throw in the cameras, the bandwidth, people monitoring them, the facial recognition software. There is nothing to show that those actually have any impact on crime or any impact on convictions. DPD did a study, sort of looking at four years of data from Project Greenlight, and their conclusion was they couldn't say whether Project Greenlight itself had any impact on crime. Right? So what are we spending all this money for? Why are we creating a surveillance infrastructure with no tangible benefit, right? And let's be honest, if you create a surveillance infrastructure, it will be used. You can look at uh, the surveillance of Muslims in the aftermath of 9-11. You can look at the programs that were disclosed by uh, Robert Snowden. You can look at all these things, and it is inevitable that once that infrastructure is created, it will not only be used, it will inevitably be abused. So it seems, though, Project Greenlight does extend beyond the gas station and corner store in the city. It is also part of the infrastructure of many apartment buildings in Detroit. And in gentrifying Detroit, it is seen as a, a plus, and I've seen it as um, listed as amongst the amenities that are offered by apartment buildings and apartment communities. So is there a correlation between gentrification in Detroit and the emergence of Project Greenlight? So at this point, if you look at what the cam- where the cameras are, there doesn't seem to be any real correlation. I mean, they tend to be clustered in certain areas, which points out a couple of problems, right? Uh, first and foremost, if you look at the partner agreement that, which is what they call the sites that you know join Project Greenlight, it explicitly states that it is DPD's objective to put these in mixed-use developments, public schools, on mass transportation, in you know, supermarkets. DPD's intent with this was to have these cameras everywhere. Right? So that's, that's problematic. But, at the, but right now, because this participation in this program is voluntary, right, there's no real correlation between where the cameras are placed and if you really thought they helped with crime, where crime needs to be addressed, right? There's no correlation since it's voluntary, right? Um, that's, again, problematic. Then you look at the fact that, as you, as you said, a lot of these places that have the cameras are private residents. I think it's something like 15% or so of these are actually um, not in, you know, they're in private sort of developments, apartment buildings, and the like. The people who live there didn't necessarily request it, okay? Uh, This is something being imposed on them by their landlord. And that's very typical of how this, of of surveillance technology and facial recognition technology in general. This technology wasn't designed with the input of communities of color largely, right? Very few people who work in these software company at these software companies or tech companies are people of color. Very few are women. 
they're, they don't get considered when you talk about, for example, how you're going to develop the testing set, which is why frequently you see problems with um, facial recognition correctly identifying people with darker skins, particularly black women. There was no community input when it comes to passing the laws that permitted this. There was very little community input when it came to finally passing a law that limits a little bit how DPD can use it and mandates some very limited disclosure. So the people who are most impacted by this are the people who, by and large, had the least amount of input into the development, implementation of this technology. That's, again, very much par for the course of how technology is experienced by people of color, generally speaking. It's something that happens to us, not something that we implement or develop. So what are the next steps for Detroit Justice and the ACLU in regards to bringing more awareness about citizen participation in the making of these decisions? So there's sort of two things happening. So the first is that um, there's a lawsuit being brought by the ACLU related to the misidentification of someone based on facial recognition technology, black man, Robert Williams. So there's that kind of initiative directly addressing the actual harm that has been inflicted on people from the misuse of that. Simultaneously, there is, on DJC's part, an effort to highlight how this, how expenditures related to surveillance among other policing programs, how they take money away from other things that are more likely to really create public safety. Also, there is some effort being made to strengthen the recently passed ordinance uh, called Community Input Over Government Surveillance. And this ordinance mandates a lot of disclosure by DPD with regard to the actual use of facial recognition. It doesn't contain any real criminal penalties as it should. It doesn't restrict use as much as it requires after-the-fact disclosure of what was done. And I'll be honest, to some extent, I'm concerned that there have been other communities that have tried to mimic Project Greenlight. Mm -hmm. And with Chief Craig's announcement that he is going to run for governor. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, And I don't want to make this political, but the man is the most either the either the most delusional or most inherently dishonest person, intrinsically dishonest person I've ever met um, in a lot of regards. So uh, the idea that he <laughs> might publicize Project Greenlight as a success is a little daunting because I'm sure he will have a lot more money to get his message out than the people who are actually um, engaged in discussing the truth will. Well, on that note... We will say thank you, Eric, for joining us today. We appreciate your candor and your honesty about Project Greenlight, and we look forward to hearing more from you and more about your work in Detroit. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That does it for us today. Next episode, we keep our eyes on Detroit and look into how the city's police department is using an audio surveillance technology called ShotSpotter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Tracked and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced by David Lyons with reporting from Laura Herberg and editing from David Lyons, David Weinberg, and Eli Newman. 
with Vox Pops from the Science Gallery Mediator Team, Harrison Adams, Ali Amel Avila Sanchez, Shanmin Sultana, and Caroline White. With mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU's Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station, with support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU FCU. <laughs>